All right, James chapter number 4, verse number 6 says this, But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. Now, remember the week six lesson that we've been working on for three weeks now. Uh, it dealt with with basically two overall themes. It dealt with uh, or three. I'm sorry. Sin in the mouth. And that was chapter number three. We talked about the tongue. And then uh, James deals with sin in the mind. In other words, you know, and, and this is the case. Everything that comes out of our mouths has originated in our mind or in our heart. Remember that when the Bible uses terms like mind and heart, often they're synonymous one with another. Now, I won't say that, that there's no distinction between the heart and the mind. Certainly there can be a difference between emotional responses and intellectual responses. But we understand when the Bible talks about the heart, it's not talking about that fleshy organ uh, that is pumping in your chest. There's plenty of people have heart transplants. It doesn't change anything about their spiritual condition in any way, shape, fashion, or form. Uh, so when the Bible talks about the heart, it's talking about the seat of emotions. And it's talking about the soul uh, along with the mind, which is the intellectual uh, seat, or at least it ought to be for us. I think some of us, uh, myself included, it's in question. But uh, he deals with sin in the mind. And everything we do, everything we say, every action that we commit, it begins first in our heart and mind before it ever works its way out into our members. And then that is the third thought that James has, is sin in the members. In other words, how we live, how we behave. So he's talked about in the verses up to where we have, have come tonight, he's talked about sin in the life revealed. He's talked about what sin is, where sin comes from. Those are the first few verses in chapter number four. Where do these things come from? The conflict, the lust, they come from you. They don't, they're not external things, they're internal things. Now that's not to say that the devil does not pray and play upon those things. Of course he does. It's not to say the world does not appeal to those elements of human nature, but it's a, it's a foolish thing to not recognize that the proclivity to sin lies within us. It's our nature. Uh, whenever we're saved, we're given a new nature, but we still struggle with the old nature. So James has been revealing those things in the first five verses, and that's where we left off last week. And in the verses we've read tonight, he deals with the idea of sin in the life resisted. So we know what sin is. Sin is the transgression of God's command. Uh, it is not just merely that God lays out arbitrary boundaries and to cross them offends God, but it's rather that the, the region that is, that is partitioned off is by its very nature an offense to God. And I think that's an important distinction to make. In other words, it's not God just saying, don't cross this line, and if you cross the line, you've disobeyed the Lord. But it's God saying, what's behind this line offends my holiness. The line is not arbitrary. It's there to protect us, and it's also there to reveal something about the nature of God. Uh, sin is the transgression of God's command, but sin is even more than just that. It is literally partaking in things that are contrary to God's nature and holiness. And it is within our nature to do that very thing. That is our depraved sin nature, the uh, what theologians call the Adamic nature, the nature that we've received from the first Adam. What can we do about that? Well, James gives us uh, two things in the verses we've read, two calls. First is a call to submit. It's important to note that righteousness comes first and foremost 
through surrender to the Spirit of God. I think this is one of the great things. You know, I'm an independent Baptist. I'm so independent, I don't even get along with myself most of the time. And I'm not ashamed of that. I think it's a right position. I think it's a scriptural position. I can give you a hundred Bible verses to show you why it is a right and scriptural position. But I will point out the fact that I think that one of the things, if there is such things as an independent Baptist movement, uh, one of the things that has been broken about the movement is that we have not laid heavy enough on this truth and reality. That victory comes not merely through observing and imitating behavior. Uh, we use the term standards. And I've got to be careful. I'll get in the weeds. I'll waste a bunch of time here. But we use the term standard. I think standard is a biblical thing. Every, every place has standards. Go, if you go and try to uh, go to work at McDonald's in your two-piece bikini, they're going to have something to say about it, right? Especially if I do. Amen? So every place has standards. It's not if you have standards. It's what your standards are and if they're scriptural standards. But I fear that one of the things that has been very broken about churches like our church is... Oftentimes, the standard has served as a stand-in for true spirituality. And it can't. It's not meant to function that way. The illustration that I've given to our young people and to our church on several occasions is, and I've probably given it in this Apollos course as well, imagine, if you will, that you went to a dock and there was a great ship that was anchored there. And someone, a casual observer that has no knowledge of any, any nautical things at all, was to say to the captain of the ship, how does that ship stay where it's at? The forces of the waves are pushing against it. The tide is trying to pull it out. The wind is blowing against it. How does it stay where it's at? And the captain was to say, well, it just, it just stays there. You just stay right there. The ship has to stay here. You say, well, I understand that, but how does it stay there? Well, it stays there because that's where we want it to stay. And you say, okay, I understand that, but, but what makes it stay there? It stays there because that's the right place for it to stay. You say, I understand that, but what puts it there? And the correct answer, of course, is that it's anchored. There's something unseen that affixes it to a, to a static point and holds it in its place. Something that you can't see on the surface, but it's there. And it counterbalances all of the other influences. I think that's often what we've done with practical righteousness. We've looked at people and we've said, dress right. It's okay. Well, how do I dress right? How do I know what right is? How, how do I resist the temptation to dress wrong? And we say, dress right. Or we say, talk the right way. So, okay, I want to talk the right way. How do I talk the right way? I have, what is wrong? What is right? And we say, talk the right way. And on and on you could go about various things about looking right and dressing right and acting right and behaving right. And we say, just do it because it's the right thing. And it is the right thing. But the reality is, the secret, the key, is that it does not come through merely striving. No more than that ship could stay in place just by willing to do so. No, the way that that ship stays in place is that its position is submitted to the power and strength and influence of the anchor. And in the same way, practical righteousness does not come just from willing it to be so. Nor does it come from imitating people that are more righteous than us. It comes in the same way. If they have real spiritual righteousness, they have obtained it and, and, and displayed it because they have followed the leading of the Spirit of God in accordance with what the Scripture has revealed. And that's how we live practical righteousness. And I think that is what James is driving at. Remember, the book of James is a book of practicality. He's just made the statement in verse 5. Do you think that the Scripture saith in vain the Spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? 
And again, I'm going to go ahead and give you my opinion because an opinion has to be given one way or the other about this verse. My opinion is that's talking about the Spirit of God and saying that the Spirit of God is territorial over the lives and behavior of the people in whom he indwells. And then he goes on to say in verse number six, but he, talking about God, giveth more grace. How does he give grace? Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. The secret of spiritual victory is not striving, it's submitting. It's allowing the Spirit of God to lead you. And that's not to say that it's easy. There's no greater conflict that lies within the regenerate person than the decision to dismiss their own desires and and aspirations and will and instead follow God's will for their life. I'm not pretending it's a passive endeavor, but I'm saying it's not accomplished through willing ourselves to behave a certain way. And I think a lot of discouragement has been found in that concept, that that's how we do it. We do it because it's right, and that's what we do, and we just do it. Well, listen, there are things in life that just merely require commitment, determination, and grit. But this matter of practical righteousness is not attained. You you know what you can do? You can do everything the right way, but if you do it in your own strength and not in the Spirit of God, you know what you have? You have a form of godliness. A form, right? Anybody's laid concrete knows what a form is. If you look at it on the two-dimensional level, it looks identical. It's a form, but you're denying the power thereof. If you look at it three-dimensionally, there's nothing inside. It's not substantive. And I think that's what James is is resisting against here. He uses the term grace, and he says you've got to humble yourself and accept God's grace. We must recognize when we're tempted to sin that it does not lie within us the ability in and of our own selves To resist that, it's only going to come through submission to God's Spirit. As God deals with us and directs us, as He points out things and says, that's wrong, we say, okay, Lord, I will resist it. I will will turn away from it. I will obey you. Another illustration I've given is is the difference between calling, if you're a football person, uh, calling plays from the huddle and calling plays from the sideline. And there are times that you call plays from the huddle. Uh, but there are times when plays can only be called from the sideline because the coach knows more about what's going on in the game sometimes than what the quarterback does. But for too long as Christians, we've tried to call plays from the huddle without consulting the coach. And I'm not trying to be derogatory, but in the analogy, without following the leading of the Spirit of God, we've just said, this is what righteousness looks like. I'm going to imitate that. James says that's not how it's done. That leads, that's a path that leads to frustration, to discouragement, to defeat. The way that it's accomplished is by humbling ourselves, acknowledging that it does not lie within us, that we don't have all the answers, that we don't have all the the power, all the will, and all the determination. But if we will acknowledge that, if we will be willing and honest enough to say, Lord, it's not within me, I need your help, I need your grace to resist temptation, you know what he'll do? He giveth more grace. More than what? More than the influence and power that the world seeks to pull us away with. John said it this way, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. But it doesn't come through stark self-reliance. In fact, self-reliance is the enemy of spiritual reliance. It comes from submitting to leading the Spirit of God. He gives the secret of spiritual virtue and then the secret of spiritual victory. He says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. I've often heard people quote the last part of that verse and ignore the first part. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Let me tell you something. There's been plenty of times I've resisted sin and it didn't go nowhere. There have been. Uh, in fact, I find it to be a common practice in life that I resist sin. And you know what I find? Just like Christ in the wilderness, the devil departed from him for a season. The devil has no fear of you and I. He has no reason to fear you or I. But who he does fear is God. Amen. 
And so inasmuch as we submit to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm going to allow you to govern my life, that is what the devil fears. You see this expressed deliberately and plainly in the book of Jude. Uh, Jude says that even Michael, the archangel, who we can, I think, assume that at least at this moment in time, while we're robed in, in fallen flesh, that Michael is far superior in power than we are, that even he... Uh, did not rebuke the devil and bring a railing accusation again, or he, even he did not bring a railing accusation against the devil when disputing with him about the body of Moses, but said, the Lord rebuke thee. Even Michael understood that he was no match for the devil, but the devil is no match for God. Greater is he that is in you. Who is he that is in you? That's the Spirit of God. Then he that is in the world. Who's in the world? Who's in the world is the God of this world, Satan. And so the Spirit of God has the power. It comes not through striving, but through submission. He says, submit to God. Submit to God. Say, Lord, I'm going to give you my life. I'm not capable. I'm not powerful. But if you'll lead me, I'll follow. And as you lead me, I will obey. And in doing so, then when we resist the devil, then it's not us that he has to battle. It's God he has to battle. And there we find spiritual victory. There's a call to submit, but then there's a call to commit. Look at verse number 8. Uh, there's a word about coming to the Lord. It says, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. This is James's uh, reminder to us that um, the, how do I say this? I, I don't want to say the rules change. But all throughout the Old Testament, man was kept at an arm's length from God. Uh, in fact, the Old Testament temple system and tabernacle system was a constant reminder to man that they did not have the ability in of themselves to draw nigh to God. James now recognizes that things have changed. Paul would later on say it in, in divine terms. He'd talk about we have boldness and access by faith through his blood. But James merely recognizes the fact that now the requirement of the priesthood to approach unto God is something that's been removed. The veil has been rent, as it were, in the temple. And so he commands every believer, if you want to be close to God, draw nigh to him. Uh, it, it, one of the greatest ways you can combat against sin in your life is to walk in fellowship with the Lord. How can two walk together except they be agreed? So if you're agreed with the Lord, if you're walking with Him, you must be agreed with Him. And if you're doing so, then that is one of the greatest ways to combat against sin. I find that it's hard to pray and to sin at the same time. It's hard to read my Bible and sin at the same time. its I was going to say it's hard to go to church and sin at the same time, but sometimes people aggravate you. Amen? <laughs> but I'm merely saying that the closer we are to the Lord the easier it will be to combat sin. So there's a word about coming to the Lord. And then there's a practical word that's given here. He says this, Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. So in other words, take the step towards God. Draw an eye unto God. And in doing so, one of the things that will be expected and required of you and will be the effectual result of it is that there will be a sanctifying effect in your life. It will cleanse you. And he mentions two things. He talks about the uh, hands, and uh, that deals with our outward life, and the heart, that deals with our inward life. And these two things are interconnected. If you have a clean heart, it'll produce clean hands. You can have clean hands and have a dirty heart, but not for very long. Sooner or later, those two things will adjust themselves one to another, like magnets finding each other. And so uh, I think what James is saying is this. You know, there's a lot of things we struggle with in life that we feel are beyond our grasp and reach to resist. But sometimes we also use that as cover to allow ourselves and excuse ourselves for living in sin. How many times have you heard someone say, well, you know, I just, uh, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. 
Okay, you are. And the grace of God teaches us that denying ourselves, denying ungodliness, we should live soberly and righteously in this present world. The grace of God does not excuse us. The grace of God exalts and elevates us. It allows us to live with a righteousness that the law never could. Uh, Grace was not given so that we could live out from under the law, but above the law. And if the grace of God is a reality in our lives, it should produce a practical righteousness that involves not making excuses for our sins anymore. (laughs) We're all sinners. I agree with that. The least we owe God is to be honest about our sin and not pretend as though the grace of God uh, gives us a reason to live in sin. Should we continue in sin, Paul said? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. That's how he said it. God forbid. In other words, God won't even allow that thought in his presence. So if that's your attitude towards sin in your life, don't expect to enjoy fellowship in the presence of God. So there's a word about cleansing, and then there's a word about crying. He says, verse number 9, Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Uh, the idea here is sorrow over sin. And the laughter, the laughter that's mentioned here, it has the idea of a loud, boisterous laughter. Um, you know, you've heard people talk uh, before, I almost hesitate to say this because I don't 100% agree with it, but I do think it illustrates maybe the idea. I've heard preachers say before, you know, if you're under conviction, you ain't going to come down the altar, you know, popping, you know, bubble gum and laughing and carrying on. And I think sometimes people have used that as, as sort of a conviction meter, and, and I think there's a lot of danger in that. I, I think that a lot of people act different ways when they're under the conviction of the Spirit of God. It's not our place to tell them whether they've cried enough tears or this, that, or the other. But it is true that if a person is true, truly serious and contrite about their sin, it's going to affect a change in their disposition. What, one preacher said it this way, we won't be broken from our sin until we're broken over our sin. Until your sin bothers you, you're not going to do anything about it. Uh, this is part of the reason that I think that David was a man after God's own heart, was because David sinned, David made mistakes, David was not a perfect uh, person, he was not pure as the driven snow, but when he realized he sinned, he was broken over it. Read the 51st Psalm. After Nathan pointed his finger in David's face and David knew what he had done, it broke him in two. And I think David... Uh, he was the, the one that said clearly that God will not despise a, a broken spirit. And he'll not reject a contrite heart. Uh, David got a lot of things wrong, but one of the things he got right in his life is he was grieved by his own sin. And this is one of the elements missing. And I'll tell you this, we're never going to experience a practical righteousness until our sin bothers us more than somebody else's sin. In my life, i found that the easier I am on myself, the harder I am on others. And the harder I am on myself, the easier I am on others. And it is a far wiser path to be hard on myself and easier on everybody else. Because I can't control their actions, but I'm the only one that can control my actions. We ought to be broken over our sin. There's a word about crying and then a word about contrition. He says in verse number 10, humble yourselves. Again, that word humble. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. So this all comes from a deep spiritual brokenness. We see sin in the life resisted and then we see sin in the life repudiated. Verses 11 and 12. There's a command that's given. In verse number 11, he says this, Speak not evil one of another, brethren. He that speaketh evil of his brother and judgeth his brother speaketh evil of the law and judgeth the law. But if thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. So the command is expressed here. What does he mean? Speak evil here refers to criticism based on personal opinion, as opposed to being based on God's authoritative word. So how do you know that, preacher? Well, because like... Ten verses earlier, he called them adulterers and adulteresses. (laughs) So evidently, 
<laughs> James has no problem with strong language when it comes to condemning sin. But when he says speak evil, uh, listen, to, to call sin what it is is not evil. The term evil denotes the idea of slanderous, libelous, harmful, uh, cruel words. And he's saying this, don't, don't nitpick people and criticize them over things based on personal opinion. And by the way, I don't think that verse and the one before it are completely disconnected. I think if we're humble in the sight of the Lord, it's going to cause us to keep a lot of our opinions to ourselves. Uh, Lester Olaf used to say an opinion is the cheapest thing in the world because everybody's got one. And I'm not, listen, I hope you don't, I'm not trying to be cruel, I'm not trying to be caustic in what I'm saying, but I am saying this, there is enough that Scripture speaks upon that we don't have to insert our own personal opinion about it. We don't have to, and there, there's been a lot of foolish preaching through the years over stuff that, that I mean, uh, you can go back through, through preaching from years ago and find people preaching against colored church and wire rim glasses and beards. Boy, they'd be all tore up, wouldn't they? <laughs> Every preacher I know now, I don't know a single one wears wire rim glasses. They all got beards and they all wear colored shirts. So I guess that preaching didn't do a lot of good, did it? Speak not evil one of another, he says. Brethren, he that speaketh evil of his brother. And this is the issue here. He, he explains this. And he talks about what's involved. He says, when you do that, you make a slight of hand, a, an exchange. He says, when you do that, then you're no longer a doer of the law. You are a judge of the law. You've placed yourself not as someone under subjection to the law, but someone whose responsibility is to administer the law of God. And he reminds them in the next verse, there's one lawgiver who's able to save and to destroy. Who art thou that judgest another? Now, again, we have to be careful with what we do with any scripture. Certainly, James is not here trying to uh, render ineffective the power of God's law to judge people, but he's saying this. In other words, as Paul said, the spiritual man judges all things, but we're to judge righteous judgment. So where God's word speaks on a matter, we ought to stand boldly on it. It is not arrogant to stand with God on a matter. Uh, I had a conversation with someone the other day that kind of centered around this very thing where I was taking a scriptural position on a matter and they said, well, I just don't think it's our place to judge. And I'm just not as, as cavalier about it and I'm just not as dogmatic about it as you are. And all that is, that's tactics, that's smokescreen. Uh, listen, if God has spoken on a matter, then we have authority on it. And we shouldn't apologize over taking a position over something that God has said. It is not cruel, it is not arrogant, it is not judgmental in the negative sense to agree with God about something. We shouldn't feel bad about it. Now, we don't need to be rude about it, we don't need to be obnoxious about it. The world's got enough obnoxious people already. We don't need to contribute to that. But we shouldn't be apologetic about it either. Holy boldness requires that we stand firm on what God has said. The flip side of that is this. If, if what you're saying is your opinion, treat it as your opinion. i got opinions about all kinds of things. If you've got about six or seven more hours, I'll give you some of them. It's not wrong to have opinions, but we need to draw a clear line betwixt the two. Something's a matter of opinion, so be it. We all have opinions, and that's fine. But we ought not allow those opinions to drive and mold and shape and define how we treat one another. We should allow God's Word to do that. Because when we do that, we're saying, I am now able to be a lawgiver. I am the one that decides the rules. And the fact of the matter is, it's not you or me that has that responsibility. It's God that does. So we see this comment in verse number 12. And I've got to hasten. I've got to hurry. Look down and we'll get to our next page of notes. You can go ahead and turn over there, week number 7. 
Because James sort of switches gears here. And this is a very familiar passage of Scripture. He's talked about the Christian and their Bibles, their battles, their burdens, several other topics. Here, from this verse down to verse number 6 of the next chapter, he's going to talk about the Christian and his boasting. Now, again, when you systematically study God's Word, part of that means dissecting it. And it means busting it up into thoughts that are digestible and the themes. But let us never, as we do that, ignore the continuity. James has someone in mind here. He has in mind whoever he's writing to, and he could probably give you names, but I wouldn't know what they would be. He's got in mind people that are carnal, prideful. They see the wrong in others. They don't see the wrong in themselves. They're constantly fighting and fussing with one another, criticizing each other over things that have nothing to do with scriptural authority. Meanwhile, sin is running rampant in their lives. And what he essentially says in verse number 12 is, knock it off. And wake up, because the time is short. He talks about boasting about our plans, verses 13 through 17. We'll read all these verses and then uh, make a comment about each of them. He says, Go to now, ye that say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such a city and continue there a year, and buy and sell and get gain. Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. For that ye ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. But now you rejoice in your boastings. All such rejoicing is evil. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Uh, it's no accident this chapter ends with the word sin, because the whole chapter has been about sin. And I'd remind you that this epistle that James wrote, it wasn't meant to be studied over nine weeks. It was meant to be read in one setting. So don't ignore the continuity that is here. He sees this prideful, carnal person. And he says to them, verse 13, he gives them a proposal. He says, this is what you need to do. Instead of worrying about everybody else's problems, instead of putting off your own responsibilities, you need to go to now. Uh, We would use the term come now. In other words, wake up. Uh, address the present. Be present in this very moment. Uh, there's a lot I'd love to say about time and the concepts of time. You know, time in and of itself, when you look at time, time teaches us some things about the trilogy. Time, or not trilogy, but trinity. Trilogy is when you got three parts of a movie. Amen. And that ain't got nothing to do with the trinity. But the trinity, time teaches us some things about the trinity. When you consider there's three parts to time, there's the past, the present, and the future. And uh, we, we kind of think of, of time as flowing into the future, but it doesn't. It flows from the future into the present, into the past. And we learn some things about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Same thing's true about space. The same thing's true about energy. And I don't have a lot of time to go into all of that. I, I, I'd love to teach it at some point, but I'm not going to be able to right now. But suffice it to say that the only moment that we have to live this life is the present moment. We can talk about the past all we want, but the past is beyond our grasp. We can talk about the future all we want, but grasp as we may, we'll never grab hold of the future. We, every one of us, live in the present moment. I used to say it this way to our young people, that everything we've ever done, we've done on a today. When you, If you brushed your teeth, you did it on today. Now, I hope you brushed your teeth yesterday. I hope you'll brush your teeth tomorrow. But when you brushed your teeth, you didn't brush it yesterday or tomorrow, you brushed it today. Everything we've ever done, we've done on a today. We've made a moment's decision, a decision in that present time. And this, I think, is what James is trying to get their minds around. We live so much prospectively in the future, and yet the future never arrives. 
It's always the present that we must make decisions in. And so there's an important distinction that I want to place here. James doesn't have a problem with us planning, but he does have a problem with us presuming. And there's a difference. We ought to all plan for the future. And he does, in fact, he later on, he, he encourages them to plan. He says in verse number uh, 15, for that ye ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. He's not saying don't plan. He's saying don't live presumptuously in life. Reminds me of a parable that our Lord told in Luke chapter number 12 about a, a, a farmer, a wealthy man that was a farmer. And he had a bumper crop one year and had all of this grain. And he could have chose to sell it at that time, but he chose not to. I don't know if he didn't want to depress the prices and wanted to wait and, and sell it when the prices were higher. But for whatever reason, the man decides he's not going to use the grain. He's not going to sell the grain. Instead, he doesn't have enough room to store it, so he's going to build more barns. So he tears down the barns that he has, and he stores up all of this grain. And at this point, he's not done anything wrong. It's not wrong to own a silo. It's not wrong to own barns. It's not wrong to have a bumper crop. He's not done anything wrong at that point. But here is where the man did go wrong. He then sits and thinks to himself. He speaks to himself, and he says, Soul, thou hast laid up much goods. For many years you can take your rest, eat, drink, and be merry. The problem was not the man was wealthy. The problem was not that he was blessed with a bumper crop. In fact, uh, he couldn't have had that crop if God hadn't blessed him with it. The problem was not that he made plans. Nothing wrong with making plans. The problem was that his plans did not take into account the Lord. They had no reference to God in any of them. And they were presumptuous plans. He didn't use a bit of that grain in the present. He didn't do anything that related to the present. It was all perspective. The commentator said it this way, that he made three common mistakes in what he did. First, he mistook his bank book for his Bible. He thought that what really mattered in life was the goods that he had instead of his standing with God. He was rich. But you know how Christ ends that, that parable? He calls that man a fool. And he says, thou fool, this night shall thy soul be required of thee. And then whose shall those things be? And then he says this, he turns to the listeners and he says, so is he that layeth up treasures, but is not rich towards God. It's not a problem that this man was rich. The problem is that he was rich, but he wasn't rich towards God. He wasn't rich in the things that truly matter. He was, he was living in the perspective, giving no thought to the present standing that he had with the Lord. He mistook his bank book for the Bible. The second thing was he mistook his body for his soul. It's interesting the conversation he has. He says, soul, thou hast much goods. But what need does a soul have of goods? Soul has no need for things like grain and, and fruit and corn. Has no need for barns, houses, clothing. You see, he mistook what really truly mattered in life. He talked about the things that belonged to the body. And he associated them with the soul. But here's the problem. Before the next morning, the next sun was going to come up, his soul would depart from his body. And he was spiritually bankrupt. And that was his third mistake. He mistook time for eternity. He said, thou hast many years. But he didn't. He didn't. fact is, nobody knows how much time they have. I heard a story about a preacher one time that uh, was traveling through a market. And one of these uh, fortune tellers came out and met him. And said, if you will uh, pass my palm with silver, I'll tell you your future. And he said, you're telling me you can tell me my future? And she said, yes, I can. Just just pass my palm with silver. In other words, give me a little money. 
Just pass my phone with silver, I'll tell you your future. He said, let's get specific. Are you telling me you will tell me what I do tomorrow? And she said, Jeff, just pass my phone with silver. And he said, I'll tell you what, I'll do you even one better. I'll pass your phone with silver twice if you'll tell me what I did yesterday. And she just turned and walked away. <laughs> Seems like it'd be a lot easier to tell the past than the future, wouldn't it? Oh, they're charlatans. You know that. And I do too. The future belongs only to God. Solomon said it this way, boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. And that's as true for every other person walking on this earth as it is for you and for me. The problem with the people that James is talking about is not that they've made plans, is that they have made plans without taking into consideration two things. One, our hidden future. He says in verse number 14, whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow. Can I just put it very simply? You better live for the Lord now because you may not have tomorrow. And it is presumptuous, iniquitous boasting to put off living for the Lord because we think we're going to have tomorrow to do it in. It's not wrong to plan for tomorrow. i got all kinds of plans in life. But to put off, and, and this is what he wraps it up to. And we'll get there in a moment, but he says, Therefore to him that knows to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. It's not wrong to plan to do good tomorrow. It's wrong to not do good today because you think you're going to have tomorrow. That's boasting. Our hidden future. But then the next thing is our human frailty. He says, For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. I can't help but think James must have at some point in the pinning of this epistle thought about the 90th Psalm. Moses writes the 90th Psalm, one of only a handful that Moses wrote, and he writes it after God has condemned that entire wilderness generation to wander throughout the wilderness for the next 40 years and to die. And Moses makes the statement, well, the Holy Ghost does, but Moses pins down the statement that three score and ten is our appointed time. A lot of people have taken that to mean that that's the average life expectancy. The only problem with that is that's never really been the case. There's always been people, and you know, it's funny, you look at statistics from the Middle Age, and people say, well, the average life expectancy was 40 years old. Well, that don't mean people didn't live to 80 and 90. They did. It's just like 40% of kids didn't make it past childbirth, and there was disease, and then you had that whole black plague thing that swept through and wiped out a quarter of Europe's population. And so it, it, it drove those life expectancy numbers. Now, the fact is, ever since the beginning of time, there's been people that lived really, really, really old and people that died really, really, really young. So what was Moses talking about when he said three score years and ten? Well, remember that there were people in that company that was reckoned by whoever the, was 20 years old and older and was capable of going to war. So if you have somebody 20 years old and then they were going to wander for 40 years then they would be 60. And then, you no doubt, had people that were 40 years old and were going to wander for 40 years, would wind up 80. And this is the reason that Moses says, and if by reason of strength it is four score, you know, yet is is it vanity. It, it passes away. And so the average of those would, would be, you probably had a lot of people in the neighborhood of 30 years old. I, I personally, you might think differently, but I personally think that's probably what Moses was referencing, that God had, had turned the, the hourglass over. And they'd given them 40 years. And they were wandering through the wilderness on a death march, knowing they were never going to leave there. And so Moses says, we, we spend our years in thy wrath, and we spend our days as a tale that is told. We, we're like the, the flower that groweth up in the morning and withereth with the noonday sun and passeth away. Uh, one of the things that Moses would have constantly done, probably more than anything else in that 40 years, is funerals. As they walk through the wilderness, 
and died by reason of their unbelief and disobedience. And surely that made an impression on him. Surely that informed the 90th Psalm. And I, I can't help but think James probably had some of that in mind when he said, our life is just a vapor. It's here for a little time, just a, just a brief moment, and then it passes away. Fact is, we better do things in the present because we don't have much time. You may live to be 110 years old. I don't wish that upon you, but you may. You may live to be 110 years old, and that's still nothing compared to eternity. It's a blink of an eye. Go find a 110-year-old and ask them. You know what they'll tell you? I don't know how time passed so fast. 110 years old. And they'll say, boy, life goes quickly. Because that's it, human experience. Because we live things, not by the past, not by the future, but in that present moment. doesn't matter how many of those moments you have, we still digest it in a moment, in a day. That's how we live our lives. And so if we're going to do something for God, we better get busy doing it. Because we don't know how much time that we're going to have. One of the things that God taught me very, very early in ministry, when I first was called to preach, the first two funerals I ever did in my life, if you're a church member, you've heard me say this a hundred times, but the first funeral I ever did was of a 75-day-old infant, no bigger than a loaf of bread. And the next funeral I did was of my 72-year-old grandfather. And it ingrained in my mind that death is no respecter of persons. You may have more time than anybody else in this room, or you may have less. So you better make the most of it. Go to now, James says. The proposition, what do we do with that? Well, verse 15, for that you ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. We shouldn't allow the brevity of life to paralyze us, but rather we should allow it to focus us. And to say, well, yeah, I'm going to plan, but my planning is going to be molded around the will of God. We ought to seek God's will. And once we know God's will, we ought to submit to God's will. There's a prohibition given in verse number 16. He says, but now you rejoice in your boastings. All such rejoicing is evil. Why is it evil? I'm going to get ahead of my notes for a second. Look at verse 17. This is why. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not to him, it is sin. You know why it's evil to rejoice in your boastings? You're not rejoicing in the truth and reality of the matter. You're rejoicing in your boastings. There's nothing to it except what you're saying. You're bragging that you're going to have many, many years to do this, that, or the other. And that's what you're rejoicing in. That's what you're hoping in. You know why that is evil? Because it, it results in what verse 17 rebukes, which is the idea of, I can put it off till tomorrow. I don't have to do it today. Or procrastination is an addictive thing. And it's always easy to think we're going to have another day. You may have experienced this in life. I have witnessed it in life, and I've to some degree experienced it in my own, but I've witnessed it a lot in life, in young people especially. You'll see young people will say, well, you know, once I grow up a little bit and I've got more freedom, I've got more liberty, then I'm going to really live for the Lord. I'm going to get serious about God. They graduate high school, and now they're going to college. They say, man, you know, college, that's the fun years, you know, and I'm so busy. I, I don't have time to go to church then, but once I get out of college, then I'm going to get serious. You know, I'll have all this time, right, because that's what they think. I'll have all this time in life. Then I'll get serious, and I'll start going to church and living for the Lord. They get out of college, and they're like, man, i got this career. But one of these days, I'm going to have kids. And when I have kids, then I'm going to settle down, because those kids... They deserve a good raising. Then they have kids and they realize that all of a sudden, man, somebody just wound the clock about 15 times when you have those kids and life don't, don't slow down. It gets, it gets harder. And, uh, then they say, well, you know, our kids are little, but once, you know, once we get them potty trained out of diapers and get them eating regular food and, and they can talk, then, you know, it'll be easier. Then we'll get serious. We'll get them in some of these ministries that the church has and really raise them right. 
And then all of a sudden, here comes t-ball. Here comes dance. Here comes football. Here comes youth soccer. Here comes extracurricular activities. Here comes school. And, you know, the reality is this life doesn't slow down. You either reach out and grab it when you can or you don't get it. You don't get it. I saw a thing one day, and some of y'all won't care nothing about this. It won't be funny, but y'all that are young enough that you've played, you know, video games. I know some of y'all, right when I said that. But uh, somebody made the statement about video games and said life is a lot like old video games. You don't ever win. It just gets faster and harder till you die. And and that's true. You know, the old like Pong and and Pac-Man and all that. There wasn't no winning. You didn't get to a point and go, oh, great, here's your prize. No, it just got faster and harder until it just overwhelmed you and you died. Hate to break it to you, that's life. It don't slow down. It don't get easier. Either do it now or it doesn't get done. And that's the principle. The principle he's trying to get you to adopt in your life is this. We have this moment. We better live in it. We better make it count. We better do something for God. Because we may not get another one. This is the time to serve the Lord. Look at verse number 1 of chapter 5. We'll read down to verse number 6, and I don't think it'll take us very long to go through this. James sort of puts on the mantle of an Old Testament prophet in this uh, chapter. And remember, there's continuity here. We're not. This is not part 1, part 2, part 3, part 4. This is all meant to be read in one. And so he's talking about these people. They have sin in their life. They're, they're constantly critical of the sin in other people's lives, but they won't tend to the sin in their own lives. Uh, they're, they're boastful. They're, they're prideful. And he says this to these men, verse number one, Go to now, you rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver is cankered, and the rest of them shall be a witness against you and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. You have heaped treasure together for the last days. Behold, the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth. And the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived in pleasure on the earth and been wanton. You have nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and killed the just, and he doth not resist you. Now, if you read the book of James on the surface, it looks like James sort of has a problem with rich people. I don't necessarily think that's the case. He uses pretty harsh language, but you have to understand that in James's day, The rich men in his society, he lived in Jerusalem, and the rich class tended to be the Pharisee class, tended to be the Sanhedrin. It tended to be these same people that Christ called serpents and vipers. These people that, uh, you know, Christ made the statement that they uh, cross sea and earth to make a proselyte. And when they're done, he's made twofold the child of hell, plucked up twice dead of them, that devour widows' houses. People that used religion as a veil for their own enrichment and personal advancement. And James looks to these men that have lived life in pleasure and have done so at the expense of other people. James isn't trying to make you a Marxist here. But he is trying to point out that that class, that group of people, that one of these days their chickens were going to come home to roost. He talks about the rich men's woes in this verse and He gives a prophetic declaration in verse number one. Go to now. Now, evidently, he's talking to the same people because he just used that phrase, right? Just because there's a chapter break, that don't mean James put down his pen and quit writing. He just said in verse number 13 of the previous chapter, go to now, ye that say. Now he says, go to now, ye rich men. Weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Again, if we liken this to the parable that our Lord told about that same rich man that reaped that bumper crop, 
and uh, built his barns and sat back and lived at ease. James witnesses people that are living life in the exact same way, that have, that have gotten to where they are by stepping on the backs of other people and have cre- treated people cruelly. He evidently means that because later on he says in verse number four, the hire of the laborers uh, who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth. Just talking about people that are resting, not in their spiritual condition, but in their in their uh, immediate temporal wealth. And he says, when he says go to now, he's saying right now take the opportunity to invest in eternity instead of investing in the immediate. He gives the details of this prophetic declaration in verses 2 through 4. And the first thing he mentions is the depreciated value of their wealth. Now again, remember, he's talking about people that are resting in their own wealth, not in their relationship with God. And he says, your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Remember, our Lord himself made the statement. He said that we are to lay up treasures in heaven where rust cannot corrupt, where moths cannot, uh, where our, our garments cannot be moth-eaten and, and moths can't corrupt and eat what we're uh, putting on, our, our robes, our, our fine clothes. And then he says where thieves can't break through and steal. And the thought that Christ was trying to convey was this, not that it's wrong to be rich, but that it's foolish to be rich at the expense of your own spiritual condition. James is echoing this same thought, and he's saying, listen, at its very best, this world's treasures are passing away. Uh, There's not a single thing, the only thing in this world that seems to inevitably gain in value is real estate. Isn't that interesting? The only thing in this world that seems to get more value is something God made and he quit making more of. (laughs) But everything else, man, the things that are precious to us now, they all depreciate, they all fade away, they all break down. I've been spending some time the past few weeks trying to get our place a little bit more in order, winter coming on, doing some painting and some passion, some different things. And it's a constant reminder that at our at its very best, the wealth that this world provides is a fading thing. It's corrupting. To place our faith and our meaning in life in those things is foolish. We see the depreciated value of their wealth. By the way, uh, when he uses that term, when he says that uh, your riches are corrupted, that term for riches is the same one that Christ uses in the parable of the sower and the seed. When he talks about the things that choke out the seed, and he talks about the deceitfulness of riches. Paul uses this same term in 1 Timothy chapter number 6, verse 17, uh, when he talks about uncertain riches. The idea behind it is not that it's wrong to have wealth, but that it's foolish to place any true value in that wealth because it's uncertain. And that the deceitfulness of riches is not that riches have to deceive you, but that riches deceive you into thinking that they're anything more than riches. Listen, (laughs) the day that the dollar that sits in your billfold or in your purse becomes anything more than a piece of paper that allows you to live under a roof, to put food in your belly, the day it garners more meaning than that is the day you've become a fool. I'm not against it. It takes money to live, right? In fact, it takes a lot of it. I'm not against it. But the day it means anything more to you than merely facilitating the means to live the life that you desire is the day you've become a fool. Think about Scrooge McDuck jumping into his big swimming pool of coins, right? In love with it. And gold and wealth... They have that power to deceive if we allow them to. It's not wrong to have those things. Even the apostles had a treasure. Of course, it was Judas. (laughs) But they had a treasure, so they had money. It's not wrong, but that money was a means to do the will of God. And that's what wealth should be to us. It should be a means to do the will of God and nothing more. talks about the depreciated value of their wealth 
And then he mentions the damning voice of their wealth in verse number three. He says, your gold and silver is cankered and the rest of them shall be a witness against you and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. That's strong language again from James. I think what he's saying is this, that one of these days you're going to have to give an account for every penny that's in your bank account and how you've spent it and what you've done with it. Why would we think God would bring us into account over all the matters of life, but not over our finances? Isn't that foolish on the face of it? Uh, Don't we recognize that what God blesses us with is for the exercising and effecting of his will? So we're going to be held accountable for it? Now, listen, again, I'm I'm not against us having wealth. I'm not against you having a bank account. If you've got a big old 401k and you don't have to worry about the next 40 years of your life, God bless you. That's wonderful. I'm not against that, nor do I envy what you have. I don't think you're worse for it or better for it. But I do think we need to recognize that one day we're going to have to give an account for those things God has blessed us with and what we've done with them. He mentions the damning voice of their wealth, and then we see the detailed vision of their wealth. At the end of verse number 3, he says this. He talks about a day of reckoning. He says, you have heaped treasure together for the last days. I, I love that language for two reasons. One, because it's so powerful. And two, because it's so poignant. It brings into stark vision immediately, into right perspective, what we're doing when we lay up wealth, not for the glorifying of the Lord, not for the helping of others, but we're just laying it up with an obsession for it. And he uses the term last days. Now that term last days is, is, is pregnant with prophetic meaning. It's not just a term meaning last days, but it, it holds with it the idea of the wrapping up of God's prophetic calendar. It, it, it bears witness of the idea of Jacob's sorrow and Jacob's trouble and the tribulation period. Uh, I, I think that personally, I think the term the last days extends all the way from the times of the Gentiles all the way until Christ sets up his earthly kingdom. But it's most closely associated with the end of of that age, of that dispensation, and with the return of Christ to rapture the church and then the seven-year tribulation period. It's the same term when Paul said, this know that in the last days perilous times shall come. So it's a prophetic term. And it's interesting that James would speak to presumably saved people, I believe, when he says this, And he reminds them that to lay up treasures, all you're doing is laying it up for that time when it's going to be consumed on the world stage, the one world government. In other words, all wealth is is a tool, nothing else. You can't take it with you. To lay it up, all you do is you lay it up for those that come after you. Solomon lamented of this in the book of Ecclesiastes. One of the vanities he talked about is that a man work his whole life, sun up, sun down, and leave his wealth to another person. And this, by the way, Solomon was somebody that had experienced both sides of that equation because David spent the last years of his life laying up wealth so that Solomon could build the temple. And Solomon did build the temple. Not only did he do that, he, he, he elevated and, and, and sort of catapulted Israel to its golden age. And Solomon was one of the wealthiest men to ever live. And yet his foolish son Rehoboam came right after him and split the kingdom. And Solomon in his old age... And he knew Rehoboam, he knew his son, and he knew the promise of God that because of his unfaithfulness, because of Solomon's disobedience, that the kingdom would be split. And don't you know that it grieved him when he thought about all those years he had spent laying up well, and it was just going to be carried off to pagan lands by pagan invaders. It was all just going to waste away. 
at best, when we spend our life just trying to build wealth and build a bank account, at best, all we're doing is building, uh, and it's not even real treasure anymore, it's just digital numbers and, and you know, fiat currency and empty promises from a government that has a propensity to break promises. How foolish! Again, I'm not against you having good things. I hope you do. I hope you're richer than I ever am. But I'm saying how foolish to invest our energy and time in that instead of in the things of God. Their fraud is described in verse number 4. He says this, Behold, the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth. That term fraud is interesting because it denotes a financial motive for what they've done. Uh, it was forbidden under Old Testament law to hold, withhold someone's wages from them. If they worked, if they labored, you were required under Old Testament law to pay them for that labor. But that term fraud also denotes the fact that, I mean, the reason people commit fraud is for financial reasons. If someone commits insurance fraud, they've done it so they can get money. If they commit fraud, when Bernie Madoff and all that stuff happened with, with Enron and, and, and all the stuff and, you know, the Ponzi schemes and all that, the, it was a financial motive. And so he's pointing to these people that have stepped on other people for financial means. And he's saying one of these days that's all going to come back to you. And this is why. He says, the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Uh, that's another phrase for the Lord of hosts. You'll find that phrase about 118 times in the Old Testament. The Lord of hosts. And I could give you illustration after illustration of, uh, of, of the usages of those, that phrase, the Lord of hosts in the Old Testament. But it's always associated with God being the host of heaven and earth, seeing things on both sides of the, of the eternal divide. And he's pointing to the fact that when you defraud one another, when you mistreat one another, in doing so you're angering the God of hosts, the Lord of hosts, the one that brings into reckoning and judgment everything that we do. In verses 5 and 6 we see the rich men's wickedness disclosed. And he describes three things that they've done. He mentions first their pleasure. He says, you have lived in pleasure on the earth and been wanton. The idea there is something that is voluptuous or something that is decadent. And you can, uh, a good illustration would be the rich man in Luke chapter number 16, uh, that was, uh, that fared sumptuously every day and was clothed in, in purple and fine linen every single day. And again, I don't think that what he's getting at is saying it's wrong to live well, but it's that next phrase. He said, and been wanton. The term wanton is associated with something being bottomless. If you've ever raised a teenager, the way their appetite is, it's wanton. They don't matter what you feed them. They just got a hollow leg. They never quit eating, right? Wanting. They're always coming in and wanting something to eat all the time. Has the idea of something being just insatiable, bottomless. And it's saying about the rich men that no matter what they had, they always wanted more. Why? Because they were not obsessed with the having, they were obsessed with the getting. And they always had to have more. He mentions their pleasure, then he mentions their plunder. He says, you have nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter. And there were two sort of takes that jumped out to me about this phrase, and I, I think there's there's meaning in, in either of them, although I'll tell you which one I believe is the right uh, understanding of it. One is the idea of a cow fattened before the slaughter. Like if you were to see a cow being you know fed the, the, the rich corn and grain that fattens them up, and they're dumb, they're a dumb animal. They don't realize that they're being fattened because they're about to be slaughtered. But then there's a second understanding. I think this is probably what James meant. The idea when he says a day of slaughter, he means a great victory in a battle. 
And I think he's talking about soldiers that, like vultures, would run from body to body, looting and taking anything in this great slaughter. And he's saying that's how you've lived. You've lived taking advantage of people. You've lived uh, being elevated through their oppression. And then he mentions their power. Its abuse is seemingly unprevented. He says you have condemned and killed the just. Now, I would just insert this. It's, uh, it's an oft-misquoted verse. But First Timothy 6.10 says, The love of money is the root of all evil. Not that money is the root of all evil, but that the love of money is the root of all evil. Every vice in society, if you follow it far enough, there's a dollar bill behind it somewhere. Somewhere. Somewhere there is someone that is being enriched by it. And then finally we see its abuse seemingly unpunished. He says, and he does not resist you. In other words, he's reminding these rich men that there's coming a day of reckoning. And one day, if we live for this life and... Always live for the pleasure that this life affords and never giving the moment to Christ and living for Him. One day we're going to be sorry for it. One day there'll be a day of reckoning and we'll be held accountable. Let's, hey, let's live for the Lord now because we know we have now. We don't know about tomorrow, but we know we have now. Let's make it count for Christ.